0: Welcome to another episode of A Socialist Reads, Atlas Shrugged. My name is Jonathan Seifried. I am the self-proclaimed socialist doing a close read of Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. If you've been enjoying the show and you'd like to support my work, well click on that Patreon page link in the show notes. and. Always feel free to send me a question or a comment at the email address for the show, socialistreads at gmail.com. All right, so today I'm going to be introducing a new framework that I'm going to keep coming back to as I go through this very long journey of a close read and engagement with the ideas of this gigantic book. And the framework that I'm introducing today is a method that history teachers will know very, very well. It was taught to me by someone who I admire so very much, the founder of the Stanford History Education Group, Sam Weinberg. When I was doing my master's in history teaching, Sam had us go through and do a read aloud of a historical document just saying whatever popped into our mind about who we thought the speaker of the document might be, the person who wrote it or made the speech, who who they were in the larger society and how that could have affected what they might say, thinking it aloud as we were reading it through. Other aspects of sourcing that we gave this type of treatment to was the question of the intended audience, And how that might have shaped the message, and then also the historical context, the time in which the person lived and wrote this document, and how that might have shaped the message. And all of this was just spoken aloud, kind of ad hoc, being wrong sometimes, being a little bit sloppy as you were, just showing your thinking. And this was meant to model for your students what they would be going through, not putting together some pristine academic thesis in which there are no mistakes, but really modeling for them the courageous act of sharing ideas as they come to you. So this is the kind of thing that really inspires this entire podcast. I'm not making it perfect. You can tell probably now that you're into episode four that I'm not reading off a script. I'm just letting my response flow and doing the best I can because I don't want to model expert-level perfection in an academic sense. I instead want to model how you might talk to someone who disagrees with you about politics about this particular book. And it's not gonna be perfect. It's going to be a give and take and you're gonna say things that you wish you could say better But so is the other person, and so we have to be patient with each other and patient with ourselves when we're having this type of discussion. So here's what I'm going to do with historical context in regard to Atlas Shrugged. I'm going to riff for just a couple minutes, thinking aloud, about what kinds of things in the historical context of the 1950s would have influenced Ayn Rand to write Atlas Shrugged in the way that she did. Now, just an aside, I'm new at podcasting and I've had a little trouble with the microphone, so this is the fourth time I'm recording this in order to get rid of that background hum that happens from when you've got your computer plugged in. That's what I figured out. So future podcasters out there, don't record with your computer plugged in if you're recording on a laptop. All right, let's talk about historical context. Ian Rand wrote this book, The Ideas in It, over a long span of time. It was published in 1957, but The Ideas in It, especially at the beginning might have been in the mind of Ayn Rand during the 1950s. And of course, the major historical context here is post-World War II United States. Ayn Rand lived in New York for most of the 1950s and would have been familiar with the sights and sounds of the city. There were a couple recessions as the economy adjusted from wartime production. And that's the kind of thing that Ayn Rand would have witnessed. But those recessions were really not as bad as the Great Depression at all. They were bumps in the road, you could say. So Ayn Rand is not writing during the collapse of capitalism in New York City in the United States. Ayn Rand is writing after capitalism came roaring back thanks to... Government intervention, World War II production followed the New Deal, and Keynesian economics, the idea that government should have a very heavy hand in addressing macroeconomic problems, that was the dominant opinion of policymakers in the United States and other Western capitalist democracies. So the ideas that Ayn Rand is putting forward in Alice Shrugged, that there's something decaying or wrong with capitalism, well, that's just not what was around her at the time. It is something that might have made sense during the Great Depression, but Ayn Rand is publishing this book in 1957 when it seems like the problem has been largely solved in terms of what to do when you've got macroeconomic stagnation of some kind. So Ayn Rand is putting forward these ideas that are very, very much out of the mainstream and popular approach when it comes to the role of government in the economy and also in terms of the success of capitalism itself as envisioned by the economic leaders of the United States. So this is not a, any kind of widely held minority opinion here. This is very, very much out in the woods. And it's only later in the 1970s that a lot of people look at Atlas Shrugged and then they see the stagnation in the economy due to the oil embargo and its ripple effects, and they see, oh my gosh, it's because of welfare spending, is what they say, and they then come to the conclusion that Ayn Rand predicted this. But if you were to read this book when it was first published in 1957, you'd maybe be scratching your head, like, why are you taking us back to the Great Depression right now, but not the Great Depression? So this was very much an imaginary world. Ayn Rand is not describing decay as she sees it around her. She's writing this at a time of prosperity, but she's got a problem with some of the assumptions that policymakers are making when addressing the question of well why is capitalism doing okay now and the answer from the dominant opinion at the time in the, in 1957 was it's because government plays a big role and remember that in the 1950s we've got president dwight eisenhower a republican but it's a time of gigantic government spending on massive projects like the interstate highway system. So it's a very interesting moment that Ayn Rand publishes this book after many years of writing it. Basically, capitalism is doing pretty well with a lot of government influence, and Ayn Rand comes out with this book saying, there's something wrong, and it just doesn't really match the time. So that's a bit of historical context that maybe doesn't sound as off-the-cuff as it might have in the first recording. But that's the kind of thing that I'll want to do every now and then and also talk about Ayn Rand herself. I know a lot of people who have researched Ayn Rand a little bit might be waiting for me to talk about her childhood in Russia and what happened when the Russian Revolution took place and the Bolsheviks took over her father's uh, pharmacy and all of that, and and also the fact that Ayn Rand is, is not her original name and she grew up in a Jewish family in Russia. That's interesting. We will get to all that stuff. But I don't want to take too much time in today's episode before I get to actually open the book. And before we open the book, we need to do today's Moment of Non-Contradiction, where I go deep into the bowels of the internet and find a comment from some long string of comments that somehow relates to what I'm talking about today. And for today's Moment of Non-Contradiction, I'm going to Quora, the link to this comment will be in the show notes. The question that was posed on Quora was, at what age did you read Atlas Shrugged? How did it affect you? Did your opinion about the ideas in the book change over the years? And today's answer is the moment of non-contradiction. It's written by Karan Mehta, posted just this year on January 3rd. And here's what Karen Meta says, quote: "I know that saying that how much you dislike the book, how it is badly written, etc, is the sophisticated and intellectually correct thing to say. But reading Atlas Shrugged and The Fountainhead in my youth had a big positive impact on how I view the world, and in how I chose to live my life, and I greatly appreciate what this book did for me when I read it in my mid-teens. It inculcated and consolidated my desire to achieve excellence in my domain, and it motivated me to try my hardest to succeed. I found the book to be an inspiring celebration of the individual and of competence. In some way, reading this book put words to what I instinctively knew, and it gave me confidence to continue on my path." Unquote. There's a little bit more after that, but it gets a little bit repetitive. You can read the whole thing by clicking on that link in the show notes. And here we've got a very positive response to Atlas Shrugged, but it concedes a point that I wanted to address early on, which is The issue of craft. When we talk about craft, we're talking about how a fiction writer does at writing characters that are compelling, that connect emotionally, how they come up with a plot that when you read it, it flows. And a lot of people, as you will see if you go into the bowels of the internet, they will just trash Ayn Rand about a lack of craft. I feel like that is misdirected energy. Because if you have a novel that has problems with craft, and yes, Atlas Shrugged has a lot of problems with craft, but that does not stop that novel from being widely read and having an impact like what the writer of this comment identifies, if something can lack craft so much, as critics are very happy to point out and harp on, and yet people are getting something out of it in such large numbers and with such impact, that's actually a reason to pay more attention to what is going on with that particular book not less. And that topic is a good one to segue into the next part of the podcast in which I open up the book. I am so proud of that sound effect. I feel like I'm really getting the hang of podcasting now. All right, so I left off with Eddie Willer's and that memory of the oak tree, and now there's a flashback. So at the bottom of page 13 of my edition to the top of page 14, Eddie Willers remembers a moment from his childhood, and Dagny Taggart appears in the narrative without being named. Based on what you hear later on in the book, it's very clear that the she who's mentioned in this paragraph-long flashback is indeed Dagny Taggart. So maybe if Ayn Rand was better at craft, you would have Dagny introduced more explicitly. It's just not clear to me why it is that you would have This shadow Dagny here, I'm not sure that there's a good reason based in craft for that. But aside from the criticism on craft, which for most of the rest of the podcast, I probably won't even address, what we've got here is a conversation that sets up for one of the main themes that I'm going to be addressing in the duration of this very long podcast which is Dagny Taggart as a true hero. And one of the things that we ask for in our culture out of our heroes is that they go on some kind of quest. And Dagny's quest begins here, and also it's bound up along with Eddie's quest. They are having a conversation in their childhood about what... Life's Purpose Should Be. And Eddie recounts what the minister says about doing something great and doing things like saving people from fires and climbing mountains and that somehow this is just going to feel right. And Dagny pushes back against that, saying instead that she doesn't know, that they'll have to figure it out. The exact quote is... We'll have to find out. And then we've got a paragraph of Eddie Withers talking about how this idea of whatever is right as the way to guide your life's purpose has just not served him well. So basically the beginning of the quest is introduced here because what we see later on is that Dagny Taggart is trying to figure out how to fulfill her life's purpose. And initially she has this gigantic resistance against what she interprets as resignation or giving up on the part of other people that she encounters in the book at a later point. But let's stay focused on Eddie for a moment here because Eddie is gonna take us into the scene with Jim Taggart. What we've got on this page is Eddie talking about how doing whatever is right just doesn't seem to cut it. Even though he had kept this statement, quote, unchallenged, unquote, it just doesn't really seem to be enough to give him the kind of confidence that his life matters. And that same sense of self-doubt and something's wrong, that apprehension, we encountered earlier with Eddie, and it's going to stay through this entire scene. But then Eddie goes into the Taggart building, and we're treated to a moment of madmen style patriarchy here as Eddie walks past, quote, Rows of girls sat at typewriters, the clicking of their keys like the sound of speeding train wheels. So here we've got a metaphor for the sound of all the typewriters, but you know, rows of girls, like just another architectural feature, really uh, beyond just observing how grown women were referred to as girls at this time. Right, so it takes you back to the 1950s, right? Historical context when it comes to patriarchy is very visible here. And we'll want to connect with this again because the feminism, the assertive and forward-thinking feminism of Dagny Taggart is something that I really want to give a lot of credence to in this book as a, a big positive. So Eddie goes through the building arrives at the office of James Taggart, president of Taggart Transcontinental. And then we've got a paragraph that introduces James Taggart through some description. And a lot of people are critical of Ayn Rand's craft, but I'm just gonna have one last word here on the topic of craft, which is that I think this description is really good. I get an excellent sense of James Taggart, both physically but also psychologically, from the way that Ian Rand adds details about James Taggart's appearance. And sentences like, quote, He looked like a man approaching 50 who had crossed into age from adolescence without the intermediate stage of youth. He had a small, petulant mouth and thin hair clinging to a bald forehead. His posture had a limp, decentralized sloppiness, as if in defiance of his tall, slender body. A body with an elegance of line intended for the confident poise of an aristocrat, but transformed into the gawkiness of a lout unquote. This physical description, I think, does a really good job of embodying all the things that are wrong with James Taggart. And, oh, all the things that are wrong with James Taggart. We are just at the beginning of that. And one last thing I'll say about this paragraph that introduces James Taggart is that we have a different kind of look, a different kind of way that Jim Taggart's eyes move. Jim Taggart's eyes, they're shifty. They never quite stop. They're always kind of looking around and uh, basically never settling on anything. This is an interesting moment to compare with the description of the bum that starts out on the first page of the book where the bum's eyes are mocking and still. So two different portraits of human failure here. All right. So now we're going to have to stop and come to the end of the time for today's podcast. Next podcast, we will delve into how James Taggart solves problems. (laughs) He doesn't solve them. Uh, He avoids them. (laughs) So uh, the way that James Taggart does not solve problems is what we'll delve into in the next podcast. Thank you for listening. This has been an episode of A Socialist Reads Atlas Shrugged. My name is Jonathan Seifried, and I look forward to talking with you again about Atlas Shrugged in the next episode.